welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach, Matt Jordan. Matt has a degree in kinesiology and a master's of science in exercise physiology from the University of Calgary. Matt has been the personal strength coach to more than 20 world and Olympic gold medalists, and has worked with elite athletes in many sports including speed skating, cross-country skiing, alpine skiing, snowboarding, biathlon, hockey, football, volleyball and mixed martial arts. Matt is now a strength coach, the director of strength and conditioning for the Canadian Sports Institute in Calgary and the director of sports science and sports medicine for Alpine Canada. Matt is currently completing his doctorate in medical science at the University of Calgary focusing on ACL injury, re-injury prevention in elite alpine skiers. On this episode, Matt and I discussed many topics, including Matt's background and influences, what are the good and bad things that Matt sees within the human performance profession, Matt's thoughts on strength development and programming based off his contributions to Stu McMillan's article series, A Coach's Guide to Strength Development on Stuart's blog, which currently has seven parts to that series. And we also spoke about Matt's PhD work on ACL injury reduction and rehabilitation. This was another excellent show, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. All right, Coach Matt Jordan, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my show. Just for the listeners, Matt, who may not be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I guess, uh, a strength coach uh, is, my, is my background primarily. I uh, moved to Calgary when I was uh, pretty young as an athlete, but got basically right into becoming a strength coach, sort of going down that path. Um, today, my day-to-day involves more of um, blending the science with the, the art of coaching, so I, I oversee a group of strength coaches here at the Canadian Sport Institute of Calgary. Um, I do consulting through my business, and uh, uh, some of that includes um, working as a sports science, sport medicine lead for alpine ski racing, and uh, also, you know, consulting with other sports organizations and coaches, helping them with uh, performance solutions for their for their sports. And uh, currently, also doing some research in the area of ACL injury prevention. So basically, what you're telling me is you're kind of a big deal. <laughs> I don't think about that, you know, it's funny. I I uh, got lots of irons in the fire, um, but uh, you know, it's a uh, been it's, it's 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 definitely definitely fun lots of lots of good things happening uh, but it's uh you know it's uh it's been uh, it's been a good few years for sure with exciting exciting opportunities brilliant great stuff man a question i ask everyone who comes on this this show is uh, who have been the biggest influences on you not only as a coach and as a scientist but also as a person also as a human being so what would your answer be to that well, you know, starting off in my journey uh, to become a strength coach, it was funny that the strength coach I was in Calgary at the time, I was I was literally like 18 or 19 years old, but it was uh, Charles Pollican who was um, the strength coach um, out here, and he had a right-hand guy named Andre Benoit. Um, so oh, I, 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 know, I, I know I know, Andre well. Yeah, so Andre, Andre and I go way back. I, my, I, I, I helped Andre with biomechanics tutoring when we were in, in undergrad, and, um, and he helped me figure out how to become a strength coach. So uh, it was a strange situation because I was literally, you know, I was probably 19 starting off in university and Andre was coming back after being an Olympic luge athlete and, you know, he was, uh, he was trying to get, you know, get the cobwebs going out of the way for getting back in the mode of math and all that stuff and, and you know, I, I, him and I just naturally fit and 
you know, so to be truthful at the start there, I mean, Andre and, you know, obviously Charles, because I was, that was who I saw as strength and conditioning coaches, uh, you know, in my, in my world, that was the, um, that was kind of the starting point. And, you know, Charles gave me a couple of good pieces of advice and doubt that doubt he'd ever even remember saying it, but he, his advice was, um, look the part and, and read lots, which I interpreted as, you know, look the part, meaning you're passionate about the weight room and you, and you, and you're, and, and you, and you, you, you actually lift as a strength coach, you know, as the idea that, you know, you can't just be a, a bookworm and you have to be able to, to be able to, to mod it, model some of the things that you're going to ask athletes yeah. to do. And then likewise, you know, he was, he was a very academic guy. He, he, he's one of the most well-read individuals I've ever come across. So that was a, that was a starting point. But I mean, you know, beyond that, I, I mean, I obviously progressed and found my own identity as a strength coach and, you know, um, Two, two individuals that I really gravitated towards um, over the majority of my my career is my, my current PhD supervisor uh, Walter Herzog, who's a uh, you know, world-renowned biomechanist who who does some unbelievable work in the area of basic muscle uh, mechanics. Um, they're specifically in, in looking at um, the role of titan in, in muscle muscular contraction, along with some other really interesting research. And he's just a great guy. Like he. Uh, He's a scientifically minded. He's got a, a very balanced ego. He, he, you know, he's not easily rattled. I just love how he carries himself. Um, another guy on my committee, Per Agar, who I met in 2008 at the International Conference on Strength Training in Colorado Springs, he just blew me away with his presentation, his knowledge base, how he was applying the science in, in terms of sport. And another really phenomenal human being. Just, um, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about uh, Per and, and Walter in terms of their um, just their how they are as a person alongside the, you know, alongside being great scientists. And then the last two people I'll, I'll throw as, as big, uh, big influences would be, uh, you know, Stu McMillan and, and Dan Paff. I mean, I met Dan through Stu, but Stu and I have uh, been longtime buddies and longtime friends in Calgary and, and also colleagues that, you know, uh, I mean, for, for a decade, him and I, every April, will be sitting down, figuring out our plans for the year, collaborating, you know, figuring out what, what direction we wanted to take things. And, um, no doubt uh, those two individuals have been profound. Uh, Dan, for sure, as well, from a coaching perspective, I just I, I always hold him in the highest regard as a coach. So that's, uh, I guess, is a nutshell. But there's a, there's a lot of other names, but those are some key people. Great stuff, great stuff. Matt, in your, in your opinion, what do you think are the best things and the worst things about the human performance profession? Um, well, I guess, I guess the... I guess the challenge, you know, and I'm not even going to say it the best or the worst, but the challenge is that, you know, a lot of training, in my, my opinion, is sort of like uh, choosing, you know, the coffee shop you like your coffee from. Um, you know, let's say you're, you're picking Starbucks versus your, you know, your corner, um, you know, your corner espresso coffee, coffee shop. And, you know, what, what does it boil down to? I mean, the pick between those two um, is largely a matter of opinion. You know, some people, some people Starbucks for a variety of reasons, the branding, you know, the way to make their coffees, uh, you know, the variety you can get, the customization, and, and, you know, some people prefer to have have a really nice espresso that's, you know, uh, well-made, and, and they prefer to support smaller businesses, and, and, you know, just like that preferential choice of whether you choose Starbucks or a local shop, I sort of feel that um, one of the challenges in strength and conditioning is that, or, or high-performance sport or performance is that you know, you still have in programming a large subjective component. Um, I always say the biggest success factors are, you know, you be well-liked as a coach and, and you write a program that people perceive as good. And it doesn't matter if it actually is good. It doesn't 
matter if you actually have impact. It doesn't matter if you, you know, really influence the things that matter for that athlete. Um, if they like you and they think if you write them a good program, that belief and that buy-in are the, you know, huge two, two huge success factors. And I guess my, my beef with it is that you can have that occur for uh, alongside, you know, people who are, um, let's say, maybe not providing the most effective performance solutions for an athlete or a sports organization. So it becomes, you know, despite the fact that you, you know, you've got this this uh, this uh, great great person who you believe writes you a great program, you're not actually getting what you need. And so um, I've sort of been saying more and more uh, that you know we really have to you know figure out what matters for each athlete and each sport. A measure what matters and change what matters is a kind of a core philosophy, and um, I guess that brings me to the good parts about about it is that you know to me it's it's um, I love I love I love being able to convert the hunches that we get from the daily training environment. So you know every great thing starts with a coach who's got a good hunch or a good idea or a good mm. clue on what matters, and I love the process of you know attaching some science to it so that we actually validate these markers and. And look to look to establish, you know, um, a little bit more science and objectivity behind the whole process. And and to me, that's that's the great part about this this business now is that it's moving that way. And I think that the the whole the whole idea of just writing a great program and being well liked and being able to fit into a high performance sport environment they're critical still. But they're now becoming increasingly smaller components of what you know athletes and sport teams are looking for. Like they're really looking for people who can change change the things that matters. So that's the, that's kind of the I guess the challenge, but also the good thing. They're kind of linked in my mind. Yeah, to be yeah. honest, uh, I'm actually very en- envious of of your sort of position because it's it's exactly where I'd like to see myself in a few years in terms of. Um, there's a bit of an echo here in my end, but I, I really love to do a master's and eventually go in and do a, a, a doctor or a PhD in, in some sort of uh, aspect of sports science, but also keep that coaching aspect as well. So I, I, re- I really like what you're doing. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Like I, I didn't, you know, I, I I never I was I've never except for my first couple of years of undergraduate studies, I was never not coaching. And um, you know, through my masters, I was coaching full time. Through my PhD, I've been I I haven't been uh, coaching full time actually. I've been out of the gym. I had to I had to actually take a step back for this for this uh, for my PhD. I just had too much going on and. Obviously, a PhD is a lot of a lot of work, so um, I've I've really pared back coaching, and um, you know, essentially, I just do some do some consultation with ski racing. That's sort of along the lines of um, you know um, helping them with sports science, and sport medicine. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. You know, it's it's blending the two, right? Like there's absolutely there's, you can't you can't be one way or the other. It's a matter of of being able to have a good coaching eye and a good coaching sense, but then also. Hopefully, having the ability to integrate science into a cohesive training plan, and I always emphasize the word cohesive, like it has to fit. Now, that's where a lot of times the gap comes in. You know, you got people who are trying to use science, but but can't can't make it fit uh, into into a really nice cohesive way of delivering, you know, a, a, high, a high quality program. Yeah, because I, I look at like at the likes of uh, Dan Baker, and then I came across your work and. You know, it just got this kind of concept to me because I, I absolutely, I have a passion for learning. Like, I love learning and I love teaching, but I also love coaching. And just like you said, like, it's about blending the two together. And I think it's critical that you do blend the two together. And like you also alluded to, it's usually the coaches that come up with the best ideas. It's the, it's yeah. the coaches that have the hunches because they're the ones in the trenches going, I wonder what the mechanism behind this is or why does that work? Or I wonder would this work better? And 
just be able to have that sort of real world hunch insight and then be able to turn around and actually put that into some sort of research or to be able to test the hypothesis that's what i love so like as i was saying um well, there's a bit of an echo on my end so i don't know if it came out well so i'll just say it again for the listeners that i'm almost envious of of, of what matt's doing and it's, and it's kind of like what what i eventually myself want to do and i know you're probably saying that you never purposely intended to be like oh, i'm going to do an undergrad and a master and a phd it kind of just happened you know but uh yeah. it's kind of where i see myself currently like i really want to do a master's and then from there do a do a phd or a doctorate in some aspect of human performance or sports science so yeah. you know, and, and it's really really what i want to get you on the show too to kind of discuss you know how have you juggled the two and it's interesting to note that you know the phd is kind of taken the front seat to things which which i would completely uh, have anticipated which we'll get into now but um you're going to say something there no, I mean, I was just going to say uh, just a, a word of encouragement. I mean, it's the, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was, um, I was, gosh, probably about uh, 27 or so, and, and my roommate at the time had just gotten into medical school. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he invited over a couple of uh, med students uh, with to, to our house to, to hang out and just sort of get to know each other. And, you know, one of the guys' name, uh, his name was Amir, but this guy, um, you know, he came in and, and, and instantly I'm like, okay, wait a second. This guy's got to be, you know, late 30s, maybe even early 40s. Mm. And, you know, he, he, he came in. He's like, yeah, I was, I was uh, uh, an RCMP officer. An RCMP is the, uh, the federal police in Canada. Um, so he was an RCMP officer. And he had um, really damaged his leg in, a, uh, in, a, in some sort of undercover operation. And, and he basically it meant that he had to reconsider his job and, He's like, you know, I always wanted to become a doctor, and, and um, I just decided I would apply. And, and the way, the, the logic he applied, he's like, listen, man, I'm, thir- I'm 38 years old, assuming that's what he was at the time. He's like, three years, three years from now, I could either be a doctor or not be a doctor. Time goes by no matter what. And it's a matter of, you know, if you, if you want to do something, you know, his mind was like, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's more energy, it's time, but the time's going to go by. It's going to... It's going to pass, and you either get in all in, and you jump in, and you and you make it happen, and, and you know three years from now you're in a different place, or you don't. And he really had that great perspective on um, on just being um, um, you know uh, being uh, being open minded to, to going back late in the game, or you know redefining yourself. Um, another guy I had a great chat with, and I'm going to mess up his, his last name, but it's Hans Hans Christian uh, Lundgren, I think, is his last name. But he's a uh, chiropractor from, um, uh, I believe he's, uh, I believe he's Swiss. But I met him at a conference a couple of years ago. Same, same thing. You know, he went back in, in his late forties to do a PhD, and you know, very passionate about sports science and cross country skiing. And you know, you just see that that burst of, of light, encouragement, openness to being uh, like a forever being a student. You know, never, never losing that mindset of being able to grow, challenging yourself, taking on new things, humbling yourself to go back and say you don't know everything and you need to figure things out and for some reason that resonates with me far more than you know being an maniac and saying that i know everything and you know trying to trying to push my view of the world on everyone i, I just sort of it resonates with me that i'll never that i'll always be on the journey of trying to learn and figure things out which uh which i love and, and that fits well with my idea of going back to school and fitting it all together because it's, it's fun i enjoy it uh 100 agree so, couldn't agree more to be honest um, and I kind of, I've, I've, uh, I, I've heard like, you know, or I've had this discussion myself with people too, in terms of like going back and doing education and like that person who became a doctor. I mean, what, you know, if he, if he lived to 80, 90, hundred years of age, what's three to four years out of his whole life? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly, man. You know, it is three to four years. And, you know, I had a lot of people challenge me on it, too. I had, uh, when I decided I was going to do this, because I've been, I've been, I was a strength coach for a decade, you know, or more, actually. And I was, you know, I was, I was making a, had a good career going and, and um, things were going well. And I guess, I guess what drove me to go back was that I was, I'm curious, you know, I want to learn more and I, and I feel like there's more for me to, to figure out. And, um, you know, exactly. I, I just, you know, to me it was, um, it's, it is work, you know, but it's, it's also, a, um, it has been a very good period of growth for me and I've grown in areas that, um, interestingly enough, when I started this journey, I didn't think that I possibly needed to grow anymore in those areas, you know, like presenting skills or mm-hmm. analytical skills. I thought I was pretty good. Uh, but I'll be honest, after three, almost three and a half years going through this process with some great mentor, mentors, and I'm telling you, being a part of a, a truly world-class research group that is doing some excellent things, um, I've been hum- I've been hum- humbled way more, I think, in terms of my knowledge, in terms of what I need to do, in terms of the areas I need to get better. So, um, as, if you're open to it, I think it's a, it's a great move. There, uh, there was a book I read over... Uh, over um the Christmas just just the Christmas gone last year, so a book I read over last Christmas called Mastery by Robert Greene, and I remember just it's a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's absolutely I recommend anyone read it. And you know, it just resonated with me of this idea of having to like you know go through this sort of grind, if you will, and you know kind of making these sacrifices. And it kind of uh, the other aspect that really sort of. Um, resonated with me was that we're, we're in a society now of instant gratification like everyone wants instant gratification now like I put something on Facebook and I want likes and I want things now now and the yeah. idea the idea then of like having to go back and slave over a master's or a PhD or even leave a good paid job to go after something you're passionate about and then master it it just it's going against sort of what society is now of inst- uh, you know a whole thing of instant gratification where he was like if you look at anyone that's mastered a field they went back. They made sacrifices. the the uh, The thing that kept coming in my head was like, uh, yeah, you could stay. You could stay your whole life just being comfortable. Just be comfortable. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. else, or else you could say, no, fuck it. This is what I want to do. I, I know in my heart of hearts, this is this is the path I want to go. Okay, it's gonna be a bit of a grind. It's gonna be a while till I see the light at the end of the tunnel. But if I want to really reach the mastery or reach self actualization through this avenue and through this field. This is what I have to do, and that book just resonated so much because, like, I was just coaching away, happy enough, and then I was like, do you know what? I want to go back to college. I applied for college, didn't get in, but now I'm going to apply for a master's in Mary's in England, and you know, I, I want to do some more internships, and you know, because I want, because I know it's going to make me a better coach and human being in the long run. So, if anyone hasn't read that book, it's absolutely amazing, and you know, you probably don't need to read it because you you were after following your heart. You said, "Fuck it, this is what I want to do," but it's a great read. I, I'm sure you would resonate with the book too. But oh, it's yeah, a fa- I'm sure. I'm sure, and, and you know, you're you're absolutely right. Like I, I think, uh, not to uh, not to circle back to your opening question about what do I see as the challenges, but you know, alongside that whole idea that it's it's largely a subjective game that's based on athletes' perceptions of whether or not you're a good good strength coach, yeah, right, a good program in the absence of metrics. Where we're you know, right alongside that, we are in a uh, an information uh, brain candy society now. You know, you you can you can you can hit a TED talk in and in twelve minutes feel like you've become an expert with something, and and you know you can you can Google something and skim an abstract and feel like you're an ab- expert in something. And mm. you know, I, I just you know I really I really understand that good good, and I'm not even going to say 
science, strength and conditioning. They have original thoughts. They, they have an open mindset. They're highly curious. And they're able to somehow uh, dig to deeper levels of understanding and knowledge than, you know, simply uh, scanning blogs, scanning, you know, uh, TED Talks or whatever it is. I'm not signing yeah. TED Talks, but you get my drift that yeah. you know, information is so accessible now that people can just consume it. They get a bit of a brain fix, a candy fix for the for their brain in terms of knowledge. Exactly. They got something they're gonna integrate into their training the next day. But it's not, you know, in my mind, it's not that sort of deep original thinking that brings you just simple and clear and uh, very high impact um, uh, uh, ways of doing doing what we do. So uh, like uh, I couldn't like and again I couldn't and I know we have a short time here, but I just want to reiterate like I couldn't agree more and. What what I've uh, what you said something there earlier on about you know being humbled you went back to your PhD and that's kind of what I've felt over the last twelve eighteen months since I've what I've actually done is and and this and this is a this is actually a result of the society society uh, the culture I'll just say that we're in is that you know I I, I would have felt I'm a, I'm a good coach I've got very good knowledge but then I started to realize like my basic fundamental science knowledge is terrible. Like in terms of uh, just biology and chemistry, and, and you know, and, and you do need to know that stuff as a sports scientist and as a strength coach, so you can make better fundamental decisions and come up with better ideas and more creativity and have original thoughts. And uh, and I've gone back over the last 12, 18 months and studied more, you know, training theory and sports theory and physiology, and I'm just like, Jesus! Like I used to think that I was, you know, because I because I knew some periodization models or sets and reps and tempos and you know the basic weight room stuff that i that i was way ahead of everyone and, and i've just just like you said I've, I've kind of come back and like i actually know very little and i've been humbled by the whole sort of you know process of trying to you know like go back and master my my craft if you like yeah yeah cool man so uh just moving in you got into uh acls in in your postdoctoral why why did this fascinate you and i know you do a lot of work with the with the downhill skiers and i've seen some presentations you do with that in the in the boston sports medicine performance group and and you were saying that this was a really unique population to work with the downhill skiers so maybe just touch on that for the next five minutes or so well yeah okay i guess i just you know uh, as, a, as a strength coach so this is back in the days now where uh, i'm actually coaching um I, I was always trying to take an analytical approach to my to my to my practice. So, mm. uh, you know, trying to figure out ways to quantify the different strength abilities that mattered. Um, and obviously, one of the things that's very hard to quantify in in um, in in, in uh, strength and conditioning, and this is just comparatively to things like you know muscle mass or body composition, like body fat or maximal strength, is the explosive abilities and. You know, we, we, we were struggling in Canada because we didn't have a budget to buy the type of equipment that most of our counterparts had in other countries. Um, we had a very lean budget, and we happened to be at the um, uh, USOC, and again, this was in 08, actually, at the International Conference on Strength Training. And uh, Bill Fant, who's at the USOC, was touring us around and showed us these uh, dual force plates that were relatively inexpensive, so we purchased them. And bringing them back, my goal was to simply assess athletes for you know looking at vertical jump performance and and, and being able to evaluate uh, evaluate that. Um, but because I had a dual force plate system, I started to realize obviously that functional asymmetry was a relatively thing to pull out as well. And uh, I could look at functional asymmetry in athletes coming back from knee injuries or you know whatever leg injuries of whatever type. And uh, you know whether I'm measuring that in squatting or in jumping, it was just becoming a more of a qualitative way for me to evaluate if my program was going in the right direction. Um, and then in 2010, I circled back to the Alpine racing because I've been away from them for about eight years. 
players um, circled back with them, and our team just happened to have about half the team with um, with uh, some sort of an ACL injury coming back from from uh, from uh, surgery or what have you. And um, I started to see that you know the way I was looking at functional asymmetry was becoming increasingly important because I was able to um, truly um, make make some objective criteria. And you know, right around this time, I'm you know getting itched to get back into school, and I'm hungry to find um, a potential PhD opportunity. And I guess in back of my head, knowing that I needed to find something that built on my experience and built with my um, my uh, passions, I really wanted to find something that lined up with my 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 day to day. You know, it was interesting. Actually, in 2010, right after the Vancouver Olympics, I wrote a grant for um, do a PhD in aging, looking at muscle function and aging uh, runners and. Um, I was about, I guess I was too away from a cutoff yet to get funding for it. Had I gotten funding, I would have gone down that direction. Yeah. But you know, thank God I didn't because it would have taken me so far out of my realm as a, as a high-performance um, you know, strength coach. So you know, being patient and waiting and realizing all of a sudden that the stars were lining up, I had a project that fit into my day-to-day. I had experience with this. I had access to subjects. I had... It was badly needed. There's like next to nothing on return to sport after ACL injury and ski racers. We know very little about it. Lots of known about, let's say, ACL injury in young female athletes. But you know, for elite alpine ski racers, there's hardly anything out there from a from an exercise or uh, modifiable risk factor perspective. So you know, everything lined up, and it fit with the supervisor I had I had, I had in mind. And um, next thing you know, I was like, all right, this is it. I'm I'm registering. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna pull the trigger on this. And uh, dove into it because you know it was it was sort of it was meeting all my criteria for me to actually make this happen. And so, since you've be, began this PhD, uh, is there any big insights you can give us into in 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 terms of uh, ACL uh, rehab and return to return to competition or or competitive competitive events in terms of the downhill skiers? Yeah, and I'm always trying to be very cautious these days when I'm on podcasts or even i got to do a better job at this even when I'm writing. Um, someone actually, through Stu, uh, he, he pointed out um, maybe that I was overstating some stuff in that those articles Stu and I have been writing, writing which, I mean, you, you, people who are listening may or may not be familiar with it, but it basically we wrote a blog series on strength for coaches. Mm. And it was, um, it was just around... Um, fiber typing and, and whether or not that potential fast to slow transformation you get with lifting could be uh, counterproductive for getting speed. And I, I speculated, like I made a, I threw it out there as a possibility, but, you know, not necessarily saying that this is what I actually believe, but just yeah. as a point of consideration. And, you know, someone, you know, justifiably wrote back and said, listen, I, I totally disagree with that. It sounds like he's claiming that this is actually the case and, and it's not the case. We you know, we don't know that for sure. And I couldn't agree more. So, with that little preface, I'm very careful to say that some of what I'm about to say is speculative, mm-hmm. and some of what I'm about to say is, is definitely based on my research. Um, bear in mind, for me to identify risk factors for ACL injuries is probably going to take me a decade of research, so I'm in that process right now, and it's ongoing. But some insights are, first of all, that you know, functional asymmetry, the way I obtained in, 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 the, um, in the vertical jump by looking at the kinetic impulse asymmetry index, essentially looking over jump phases versus, you know, peak force. I, I try to try to evaluate the jump phases of, of a, um, as my metric and looking at the kinetic impulse, which is really the performance metric for a vertical jump. You know, your impulse momentum relationship tells you that your your positive impulse gives you your your uh, your momentum, which obviously determines your, your takeoff velocity and determines your jump height. 
So those are really your three, you know, key vertical jump metrics. Um, so I, I basically, um, I basically focus on that. And um, when I test this on a regular basis, the first take-home message is that functional asymmetry that's obtained that way seems to be related to athletes who um, are going to make a successful return to sport. As in, if your functional asymmetry after ACL injury is, is very high, and I'm going to say by very high, I mean over 20%, 25-30%, which we do see, that typically these athletes are the ones that struggle more with making a full return, whereas athletes who get back to that under 10% mm. seem to, to fare much better. Um, the second thing that's not the best quality study, but we did do a sort of a, um, a pilot training study where we recruited 66 athletes, and these were pre- these are now uninjured athletes, and we, we followed them through the season to look at who suffered a knee injury. Uh, we had six injuries, which really weren't that much, uh, but nevertheless, when we ran it through the statistical model, despite limitations, and even after controlling for, for the sex, what we found is that um, the, the asymmetry that you see in an eccentric deceleration phase of a counter-movement jump, so that phase of the movement where you're producing a, a force to, to slow your downward acceleration, yes. that, that was predict, predictive of injury in this group that had never had an injury. So essentially, there's a tool there for you to be able to you know, assess your athletes potentially on a weekly basis to potentially identify athletes who might be at risk for injury. And then the third thing that I would say and throw out there, and this is a, um, a most recent study that I'm hoping to get uh, published at some point, but it seems based on our current data that um, um, if you if you fatigue a ski racer um, in those final, final, let's say, five jumps of a fatiguing jump protocol, it seems that there is a shift from a uh, more of a quad camp balance type uh, landing strategy to very much a quad dominant landing strategy. So essentially these athletes become more quad dominant as they get tired. And obviously, you know, fatigue and quad dominance uh, and decreased hamstring activation have all been posed in the literature as risk factors for ACL injury. And so, you know, one of the things that we do practically speaking is we always train ACL injury prevention in a fatigue state. So we essentially, um, we do both, but we, we, we definitely address uh, um, making sure our athletes know how to land, know how to control positions, know how to stay out of the danger zones when, the, when they're tired. And we do that by, um, you know, putting them through fatiguing protocols in the weight room and then making them uh, do movements that require a high degree of motor control to really train them how to, how to control in that state. And, you know, that's something that we've been doing for about four years just because we thought it was useful. But some of my preliminary data seems to suggest that there's probably a, at least a couple of reasons why that might be a good idea. So that, that's another little piece of advice that, you know, if you're training for ACL injury prevention, do it every single day. Make sure it's part of your warm-up. Make sure you, you really grain this, this stuff into your athletes' uh, motor patterns and, and into, into their daily training. But also make sure you do it when they're, when they're tired so that they learn how to control when they're fatigued. So just going back to that to that eccentric marker, that was actually I think in your article series. So what is I think did you say something like you, you gave like some sort of metric on that that if you saw a certain percentage of time spent in that eccentric phase that it correlated to an injury prediction, was that it or Well no, it was just the, it was it was the degree of functional asymmetry. So you know, when they're doing they're on you know, they're doing a double leg vertical jump, your classic vertical jump. Yeah. Um, obviously if you're gonna do a counter movement jump you know, the first thing that happens is you actually unload. I mean, that's how you get your, 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 you know, you get yourself to descend as you unload the plate so that your body drops down. But as you're accelerating different towards the earth, at some point you have to produce a force to stop that downward deceleration. Yeah, and in that, in that and triphasic phase, like so, going from that, going, it's 
basically going into the isometric, going in, in between that eccentric to concentric phase. Yeah, so it's, it's you know right, right in that phase where you're you're basically your your downward velocity is still negative, mm-hmm. but you're um, but it's increasing. So it's basically like you're braking. You're braking. You're you're putting on the brakes to turn yourself so you can come back around and, and, and come back up off the plates. Um, so in that really specific phase, which um, uh, again I've just called the eccentric deceleration phase of a counter movement jump. Yeah. What was interesting is the amount of functional asymmetry, so comparing left to right, was a predictor of, of those athletes who went on to get injury. And essentially, if we look at our scatter plot and we draw a line at 20% asymmetry, so um, what we see is that if we look at athletes who are north of 20% asymmetry, all of those athletes ended up suffering a knee injury. I get you, we had I get actually you know. four injuries in that zone, and then we had two injuries in a zone between about 10 and 15%. And so, but alongside that, we had probably another 25 athletes in that 10 to 15% zone who did not have an ACL injury mm-hmm. or a knee injury. So essentially, if you're thinking about making a decision in the daily training environment and you show up and you're going to ask a question, who do I want to flag today and adjust their training program? And remember, it's two things. You want to flag the people who have a high chance of getting hurt, but likewise, you don't want to inaccurately tell somebody that can't train when they're, they're not at risk. Um, I guess the point is, is that if you're north of 20%, in our study, I would only included people who ended up getting hurt and would have not incorrectly selected people who would not have gone on to suffer an injury. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry. So uh, that's that cleared that up. So I, I was wondering, were you looking at... Because my, my question was actually going to be to you uh, before you cleared that up was you were saying like this asymmetry. So I was thinking, is it really a vertical hop you're looking at? But now I get you. It's a vertical jump and you have force plates under both sides or you have some sort of system that's, that's telling you... What like the the asymmetry between force reduction on both sides and also the eccentric into concentric phases in, in yeah. terms of I get you I get you. Yeah, you got it. I mean basically to be honest we're just using we're using dual force plates um, to, um, to to measure to measure that and then sim- simply doing you know some basic biomechanical analysis to evaluate. I get you. Yeah. The, the functional asymmetry. And you're getting feedback with the kinetics like the the, the forces going through the system obviously and then seeing the asymmetries. Yeah. yeah I get you. Exactly. Yeah. And do, do you do any then, so like that's with the vertical jump, Do you have you done any research into like a drop jump type mechanism to kind of see even like would that accentuate the asymmetries even more you'd imagine obviously with gravity now being like with that over eccentric? Well, you know, one, thing that's, one of the things that I find very interesting on the data that we have so far is that when we look at the landing phase asymmetry, and again we're calculating landing phase asymmetry by looking at the kinetic impulse from touchdown to basically a restabilization point that we see later on in the landing phase. Yeah, yeah. What we notice is a very um, high degree of variation between both uninjured subjects and injured subjects. So you, you see, you know, a large range in, in functional asymmetry going back between both of the limbs. And I think that variation is probably a really good thing. I guess the challenge is that when I look at the drop jump, what I realize is that it's a highly technical movement. Mm. So most of our athletes are not, um, I would say, adept enough at doing drop jump that I would be able to use it as a reliable monitoring tool. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we have some athletes for sure that you know get really good at them, and we do we know we do tons of drop jumping, and you know maybe in that case it would be a, a different story. But by and large, we find that the counter movement jump and the squat jump are you know easily learned. They're um, you know yeah. they don't take a long time for young athletes to become adept at them. Um, and the drop jump is a little bit too technical for our purposes. Um, so to be, to be specific to your question, we haven't done much with drop jumping. I, I, I guess the, the only reason I asked that was, let's say you had an athlete and in terms of the vertical jump, 
you know, n- nothing was really showing up. They seemed fine in terms of their functional asymmetry. But then maybe if you brought them to a small drop, uh, a small step or a small box in the drop jump, you saw more discrepancy now maybe because there was more forces going through the system. That That's kind of what I was coming at. But I get, I 100% agree, like the, the drop jump is way more technical and you're obviously going to need more uh, strength as well to withstand those forces and, and have yeah. more elastic reactive capabilities. Well, I, I know your time is short here, so I just want to get the, at least these two questions in. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think I have a few minutes here, so yeah. Oh, great. Well, in, in that article series with Stuart McMillan, which I'll link in the show notes for everyone, it's fantastic. You know, uh, it's a six-part series, and, and Matt contributed to to, uh, to two or three parts and, and two or three lengthy, lengthy parts of it as well. But in the first one, you kind of covered these uh, sort of principles of maximal strength development, and you know, you covered sort of the basic things you'd read in most textbooks: intra and intra, intra and intermuscular coordination. Uh, physiological cross-sectional area but an area I really love talking about in terms of factors with strength development is neural inhibition so you know I'm always trying to get this point across to coaches I'm like you know injury reduction aside the reason why we want to get athletes stronger is to diminish neural inhibition is to to diminish the central nervous system's um, inhibition on our true force output capabilities and it's always trying to get people to understand this so I love the term neural inhibition so maybe touch on that and then also uh there was another part in there that we we kind of just touched on there where you spoke about right being strong is one thing but obviously then rate of force development and the explosive strength deficit is something else but uh i'll, I'll get into that then afterwards but if you just want to touch on neural inhibition first and i'll get to our question on uh, time to take off with the vertical jump yeah no absolutely i mean you know it's again in the in the sometimes in these blogs and again i'll come back to the criticism that uh, i received and i you know to be honest with you, did, love, you, did love, you really did you really get a lot of criticism for them did you well, no, I, not a ton, but I mean, I, 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 I tend to note the, the people that, that give me good critiques, you know, I just, um, I think it's, those things stick with me more than anything. But well, I suppose they make you think more, sorry to interrupt you, but I, that's, 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 well, that's okay, I mean, but yeah, I mean, I had, you know, I had, I had that one, I was, so I'm sure there was other people who critic, were critical of it, but I did have one piece of feedback that, you know, um, just in terms of, you know, how much liberty do you really take with, you know, uh, interpreting the science, you know, into a uh, an article that's meant for kind of a gloss over of what of what of what really matters from a strength perspective. Yes, and, yes. You know, again, I guess when we talk about neural inhibition, I mean, you know, maybe maybe to be more most specific, we're, you know, I, I guess I would refer to it as voluntary muscle activation, which is essentially the idea that you know you 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 inherently have in the system um, a safety switch which is going to limit you from obtaining the maximal amount of force that the muscle could produce. And instead, you have a percentage of that that you can hit at any point in time. And, and so suppose we consider that and we call that voluntary muscle activation. The, the other thing that, that, that is very interesting is that it appears to be trainable. So when you put people through heavy lifting programs, one of the, neural, uh, the neuromuscular changes that occurs is you see a reduction in voluntary mu- or an increase in voluntary muscle activation. So they're able to activate um, uh, a higher, uh, a larger amount of the total motor unit pool, and as a result, they're they're uh, obviously able to produce more force. And I think it's, um, I do think it's a very um, important reason why we have people lift. Uh, we brought Per Agar to Canada a few years ago, and obviously I mentioned Per was on my committee, but um, he's got some great research on this. He's actually, um, you know, some of his of his PhD work, I believe, from the late '90s, was um, centered around this this type of uh, uh, measurement. And actually, I I also did some of these measurements in my my master's thesis. I was actually looking at the effects of whole body vibration on voluntary muscle activation. So, um, you know, I'm I'm very um, 
I'm very familiar with how you perform these measurements in the lab. You know, we do we do we do nerve stimulation um, experiments where we put a surface stimulator uh, on on let's say your femoral nerve above your femoral nerve in your groin, and we can actually elicit uh, involuntary muscle twitches, and we can superimpose these twitches on a voluntary muscle contraction, like an isometric muscle contraction. And we can look at the increase in force that occurs when we stimulate the muscle on top of your voluntary activation levels. And obviously, the difference between them gives us that sense of how much you could activate voluntarily. Yeah. Um, and, you know, really, it's, it's, I guess it's well documented. You know, when it, it is a limiting factor for, for producing force. And certainly, um, with heavy resistance training, that is one of the positive effects and one of the things that, you know, lead to, to performance gains. And, and you're right, I think that unlocking that potential is a, is a key part of developing, um, you know, sport performance for an athlete. Yeah, the reason I just brought that up is, is because, you know, most people, particularly sports coaches, are, you know, they'll turn around and say, well, I don't want, you know, I understand that they need to get a bit stronger and, you know, they need to get, you know, put on a bit of muscle, but I don't want them, you know, getting slower and you're trying to explain to them, you know, okay, like, all right, well, somebody can turn around and say, well, that can happen if someone's extremely strong or strength isn't their limiting factor anymore, it's rate of force development and, you know, it's explosive or elastic reaction strength, but, you know, you're trying to then explain to them, well, there's these neural factors that we can break down through strength training too, so... Uh, it's it's just uh, I, I just I love talking about neural inhibition. I I think it's a very interesting topic. And the, another thing, it, it kind of I don't know maybe you give your point your 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 outtake on this. It kind of explains why you can take kind of people who who uh, from track, let's say who who are, you know sprinters and they they didn't really lift, but then when you bring them to the weight room, they're strong as hell. Even though they they've never really you no know, once they basic technique and the basic lifts they're strong as hell even though they never really lifted but they've been sprinting a long time whereas you could take someone like a powerlifter or or someone who lifts and then bring them a sprinting and they're brutal sprinting and if you think about it the forces that are going through your body in terms of uh, the velocity and forces of sprinting maybe it's because they've actually increased that threshold of neural inhibition that when you go to the weight room you can display more force does that make sense yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and that's you know that's that is, um, you know, again, um, it's a it's an often forgotten component of, of heavy of the adapt, positive adaptation to heavy resistance training. I think there's actually many adaptations that are a benefit for an elite athlete. Um, I'm definitely one of those those strength coaches that believes that you know getting athletes strong is a is an absolute uh, absolute key to performance. And, and you know, I think you touched on a couple of reasons why that that is the case. Great stuff. In that first article too, and we spoke about this offline, and we've kind of touched on it now was. You know, you spoke about looking at vertical jump and rate of force development, and that that just looking at the total height or the total uh, outcome or score or result that, that an athlete gets in a jump isn't enough really to give us a true indication of that person's rate of force development. You spoke about again this time to take off, and um, you know that we need to kind of take this into consideration, and that completely resonated with me on a number of levels. Because I said to you offline, I always had this question of, okay, I take an athlete, and this is just a, a hypothetical. I take an athlete. His vertical jump, let's say, is 25 inches. I, I do an intervention. I train him for like eight weeks. His vertical jump goes up to 28 inches. Everyone's like, yay, he's three inches higher. Your program worked. That's great. But what if it took him a lot longer to display those three extra inches than it did when he was at 25 inches? And it's kind of like, well, did I actually add anything valuable to this guy's explosive strength capabilities? So do you maybe want to touch on time to take off is something that we need to look at. Yeah, no, I mean, I, again, this uh, I'll uh, I'll credit Per Per Agard again on this uh, on this idea, but you know, he calls them fast jumpers and slow jumpers, and yeah. you know, invariably, you know, I see the exact same thing when we test our athletes. Is that if you have somebody doing a counter movement jump, which is obviously a very explosive human activity, but it still, you know, it still takes you know 
potentially some athletes, uh, you know, a couple hundred milliseconds to perform a counter movement jump. It's yeah. not, especially athletes who really need to get down to deep knee angles, which we often see with our speed skaters and our hockey players, but they preferentially, you know, get down to like, you know, uh, pretty good depth to be able to, to, do, a, to do a vertical jump. The, the challenge is that for a lot of sports, a couple hundred milliseconds is, is like, you know, you're, 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 you've done two movement cycles in 200 milliseconds. So, you know, um, it really isn't, potentially isn't the time frame that these athletes uh, require uh, to produce force in their sport. And so uh, I guess my, my, my thought there is that, you know, alongside looking at, you know, your vertical jump performance, and I'd just like to say for the, for the record, I mean, you know, I, I probably touched a little bit on how you assess power and what in vertical jumping, but I'm a big believer that your best metric for looking at vertical jump is just the vertical jump performance. Look at the positive kinetic impulse, look at your bake-off velocity, and obviously that gives you your jump height. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that when you profile vertical jump performance, we know it's an explosive human uh, movement. It's easy to do. Um, therefore, we use it a lot as a test of explosive ability, but bear in mind that, you know, if you're in a sport where uh, your ground contact time is 90 milliseconds or 120 milliseconds or whatever, that the counter-movement jump might be not only not specific to your ground contact times, but it actually might not be specific even to your uh, your joint torque angle relationship yeah, that you need yeah. to, to use in your sport. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Uh, like, uh, and it, just with that example I use of like 28 versus 25, some people might counter that with saying, well, okay, he jumps 28, so now his 25 is more so maximal. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you know, people are trying to weigh that up as well. But that, that's a great point with the ground contact and the joint ankles, so the carryover specificity. Another thing people say too is, you know, the guys who need to dip lower, that could be a fiber type thing. You know, the more kind of slow twitch guys, they need that longer time to load up or wind up, if you will. Then you're more kind of, you know, yeah. explosive people. They're kind of like, boom, boom, down and up. But yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's just an interesting point that time to take off. I've, I read one or two papers on it too. And because again, it was just questions I had in my mind. Again, go back to like, you know, the people, the coaches kind of in the trenches going, oh, yeah, I like the, that's something I'm just kind of thinking about lately. Um, Matt, before you go then, just in part four, you kind of spoke about the principles of periodization and you came up with this sort of concept that, listen, you can study all these different models of periodization. He's like, but at the end of the day, really any top model of periodization kind of always respects these three principles, specificity, overload, and recovery. And I don't know, I had Dr. Mike Isertel on my podcast lately. He recently has wrote a book called The Scientific Principles of Strength Training, which is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best books I've read ever in training and definitely one of the best ones that have come out lately. And he kind of put these seven training principles in a hierarchy. And the first three were specificity as number one, overload is two, and recovery is three. And it was just funny that you had them the exact same way. So can you maybe touch into like, if you're not kind of respecting these kind of principles before you start kind of dwelling into these models, you're kind of putting a cart before a horse. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess I guess what it boils down to in my mind is that, um, you know, there are, there are, let's just, let's just say that periodization is a theory. We call it periodization theory. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, yeah. You know, if we think about a theory, you know, or, or a, some sort of like model, what we hope that it allows us to do is to make predictions. And, and, and obviously what we're trying to predict in this case is we're saying that if we manipulate certain parameters of training, that we can better control control and better predict when our athletes are going to be at peak performance. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, over my decade and a half doing this, I've realized that there are so many anomalies to conventional periodization that you really can't start by reading the model and reading the, you know, reading, picking the, picking the undulating model or the linear model or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever is out there. The reality of the situation
periodization is that periodization is a highly individual process. Um, you know, you have some athletes that respond extremely well to work, other athletes that respond extremely well to having, um, you know, good tapers and rest. Um, and you have, you have lots of anomalies and lots of interacting, interacting parts. So uh, to me, you know, if you want to keep it simple, um, you know, periodization starts by figuring out, you know, what are the gaps for this athlete? So what matters? How am I going to track and measure what matters? And then how do I design a program that can change what matters in the, in the right way? And, and in, that, in that vein, you know, you, you're likely going to realize that if, you know, if you're going down this process is that if you figure out what matters, you know, that there's an element that if you don't actually do what matters regularly, that it's likely that whatever it is, it's not going to improve. So that's, you know, that's the idea in my mind of, of specificity. We also know that you know we get stagnated. We get stagnated not only with the, the amount of load or the intensity of load, but also with even the, the variation in the load. You know, so if we get if we get long periods of, of monotonous loading, that can also the, a training response. And mm-hmm. you know, you see that not only in a in a um, in a uh, physiological sense, but you see it also in a mental sense, which which is as important as anything else. I mean, Absolutely. we're dealing with human beings here. We're not dealing with lab rats. And, and your athlete experience of the program is going to be key. So when you get into those stages of either monotonous training or too little overload or potentially too much overload, you're, you're in a danger zone of, of being, of being you know, running the risk of, of, of maladaptation. So that's, that's the idea of getting, getting the right amount of overload. Yeah, then, okay. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say the final part is, you know, we know that there is a recovery process from any sort of training stimuli, and, and recovery is is uh, you know not not only anecdotally important, but we just we know it's a critical piece. But that time course of recovery and, and how people cover optimally for them that's that's where I think the, the golden nugget is for for designing a periodization program and or a periodization plan. And and ultimately, I don't think if you're not grounded in the metrics and you're not monitoring things the right way. And um, you're not having a flexible approach to how you integrate those three elements into your periodization plan. As in, you're just reading a, you know, reading a template and trying to fit the fit the person into the template. I don't think it's going to work as well as if you, you're flexible, minded, and kind of coming back to the biology of what's happening versus the uh, the, the logic of it. There's a great paper called The End of Periodization by Yuri Verkashansky. It yeah. studies in athletics. I believe it's in, it comes out in around 1998 or so. Excellent paper. It's, a, it's a, one of my Bible papers that I, I read all the time. That really sums up uh, why you have to have a, um, a really um, flexible view of periodization versus a you know a rigid logical. Yeah, he absolutely slays Mefiev in that paper. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I know, yeah. I know, I know. Verkashansky and Mefiev yeah, didn't see eye to eye, but uh, it's, yeah, I read that paper. Right. Yeah, it's a good paper. But uh, I, I know, like the likes of John Kiley would completely agree with this. You know, John, and and you know, even in, in a later part of the series, since Stewart's won in part five, he talks about the plan and trap, and you know, we know. Well, maybe not. It's not widely known, but like we know from people who've read the sort of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, knows that the universe is unpredictable it's not it's not the mechanistic mechanistic uh, newtonian physics machine that we were led to believe before the idea of quantum physics and and quantum mechanics came out and quantum physics and mechanics saying that actually the the universe is unpredictable and and if the universe is unpredictable that means that your training with athletes has to be unpredictable so you can't be just so rigid in your in your planning i know dan fast speak on this and having these plan a's and plan b's and being it's more of a fluid process than a rigid one but uh, the, the other thing I loved in that part um, 
in, in this in this part four about this uh, principles of periodization that you wrote about you, you know you said do I think periodization is important for young coaches you know to study and get a grasp for yes absolutely but again knowing these fundamentals you know specifically in overload and recovery but what I really loved was when you talked about a professor you had and he was saying listen it all comes down to cells and signals like he's a yeah. once 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 you're you know once you're stimulating the cells in a specific way once you're uh, organizing the magnitude to the overload so and then once you're allowing the cells to recover so going back to specifically overload and, and recovery but I, I thought you put that so beautifully in that like listen at a cellular level if you're doing this you know you're respecting specifically overload recovery if you're not respecting those from the get-go looking at all these models again is putting car for the horse so i really really thought that was excellent Ah, no, I appreciate that feedback. Yeah, it was, it was just, uh, it, it was brilliant. Um, I think that, like, I know you're short on time, so uh, really that's probably all I have for you right now, um, Matt. I mean, it'd be great to get you back on again at some stage. Um, do you have, actually, one other just little thing on this was you spoke about biorhythms in, in that little section. Can you just maybe touch on, because uh, I am actually a circadian rhythm, like, freak. It's, it's dark right here now in Ireland. I have, like, my blue light blockers on when I'm on the computer here, so... I'm on into like melatonin and cortisol rhythms, but you spoke about like biorhythms having a big impact too on adaptation. Uh, just maybe touching that for a minute before you go. Uh, yeah, I think I guess that, I guess that's. Um, if, I mean, what 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 we know is that is that biorhythms are obviously we have sort of those entrained biorhythms, sleep cycles and whatnot, but we also know that they're somewhat modifiable, as in athletes will adapt. But you know, it's it's I guess it's an element of. Uh, an element of human performance that we often we often overlook, um, sort of what what are athlete rhythms, and one of the things that I'm um, very interested in looking at, and like you said, you know, there there's an interesting aspect of, of, of the universe and Newtonian mechanics, and and you know, randomness versus chaos, and all this. These 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 are emerging um, quite a bit uh, quite a bit in our in our uh, in our 21st century, and you know, for sure, you look at you know the the idea of dynamical systems theory and pertaining to human movement or, um, you know, psychology or motor learning. And I guess the point is, is that I've always been very interested in trends in biorhythm and trends in, in, in how that affects athlete performance. And, you know, for me, you know, specifically how I record it is as a part of my daily monitoring, I do record, um, you know, data such as uh, sleep quality, sleep hours, um, you know, uh, to, to get to get a sense of, you know how does how does a biorhythm uh, change over let's say a you know six seven eight year period? You know that's really where it's useful for me. Is I don't necessarily you know check, get up every morning and check how many hours do the athlete sleep, but you know when I can go back on a big data set um, and be able to you know look at trends and look at um, and look at patterns, um, I think it you know gives you a deeper insight into how to how to how to link all these various things together. I always say it's about it's trying to make a cohesive training program, and a cohesive training program is one that kind of fits together all the moving parts that are that are related to performance and, and that just happens to be an important moving part in my opinion yeah it, it, it uh, the reason why i asked about the biorhythm too was when i was reading the article because uh, I, I was studying so much training theory and you know i was really getting into the principle of specificity and, and the thing with specificity is that it has so many subcategories like when, when you hear specificity as a young coach for some well for me anyway i was like oh specificity is like the movement anyway like, well actually it's the movement it's the it's the joint angles it's the muscles it's the near it's the 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 neural demand the metabolic demand and then like i was thinking well biorhythms i think in that you wrote like if somebody's competing at a certain time but they're training at a different time that's not specific then to them do you know what i mean so if they're competing at like night and they're training all in the morning then yeah. the specificity of that training is not as specific as could be because you're not stimulating like the organism isn't in the environment that's going to compete and so specificity wise you could be a lot more specific so specificity just has so many subcategories to it 
Um, and yeah. I just I just thought that blended in beautifully. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, we, we, and I have examples of where we've manipulated this, but you know, I give you a, a tangible example around sleep. You know, in the in the Sochi, our alpine racers had a nighttime race in slalom, and what I was able to do is go back over all the athletes, uh, look at their sleep, uh, their sleep duration, look at their sleep quality, look at competitions where they performed well, look at how they performed in nighttime races. We worked with a sleep doctor to, to identify their their Amazing. their sleep. Uh, their sleep uh, um, patterns and their sleep um, cycles and whatnot. And um, to be honest with you, what we did when we uh, we realized we had night races is we spent uh, three or four days in Calgary. We did simulations in the morning, uh, various types of warm ups, various types of um, you know um, uh, various types of uh, waking times and what have you, and, and evaluated performance markers in the afternoon and evening to get an idea of how we might affect those elements in response to, um, you know, in, in, in response to the types of warm-up, the type of activation when they woke up, mm. how they spent the day. Because, again, a lot, a lot of a lot of sport is rhythm, right? You, you get into rhythms, and, you, and your rhythm is what Absolutely. kind of carries you through. Um, so I, I'm, uh, you know, it's a bit soft, it's a bit qualitative, but I, I, really, I really think that, you know, looking at any sort of rhythm is, is an important part. It seems, it resonates with me, is that rhythms are a key to sport performance. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. brilliant stuff, great stuff. Matt, just finally wrapping up, uh, what would your top advice be to any young, um, not actually, I'll take that back, what, what's your top advice to anyone listening right now? And it can be anything, it doesn't have to be, because uh, sorry, my old question used to be to young coaches, then I realise I've got coaches of all ages listening, so I can't be discriminating against the middle to older people, so what would your yeah. top advice be to anyone who's listening to this podcast? And it doesn't have to be just limited to uh, sports science or physical preparation or human forms, it could be anything. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. I guess, I guess, I, I would, I would boil it down to um, you know, stay curious, and nice, and, and nice. be be courageous to to have original thoughts and to and to and to and to chase that. You know, to, to have to have that uh, urge to, to think for yourself and to take those risks to be to be an independent thinker. Yeah, I might as well be talking to myself because that's exactly how I express. I have the courage to think for yourself. That's what I always say every time I I open up like a talk to a group. I'm always saying. Uh, I always say, please think for yourself. Please do not bl- blindly believe anything anyone tells you, and that includes me today. All I'm doing today is sharing information. I'm not telling you anything. I'm sharing information, and I also yeah. please have the courage to think for yourselves and come to your own conclusions. Have you have you ever read Wal- Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, Self Reliance essay? No, but I think it sounds like maybe it's something I should put on my list. Oh, you would. You can get it on audio too, if because it's uh, but Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self Reliance. It's absolutely amazing. My, one of my favorite lines in it is. Uh, uh, who whoso should be a man must be a non-conformist. That's one of the lines, and, and I absolutely love it. Now, I prefer if you said human, because I I'm one of these people. You know, but back then, that was 19th century writing. Everything when everyone wrote man, they meant human. So women go mad, you know. They're like, well, it's a bit sexist, but like he meant human when he wrote man. But uh, you know, who uh, whoso should be a man must be a non-conformist. I love it. It's just the whole essay is about you know believing in your own your own original thoughts and your own thinking and having the courage to think for yourself and believe in in yourself. I just love it. Um, just uh, last two things Re- resources Matt what would your top resources be now this could be a book DVD a seminar a person to go see and again it doesn't have to be just limited to human performance anything at all well we I mean I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of what uh, Dan Papp and Stuart are doing down at Altus um, I think that they've got a uh, they've got a great apprenticeship program going on um, here at CSI Calgary we also offer a strength and power performance course twice uh, twice a year for, for aspiring strength coaches oh well, I didn't know that I, I knew you did internships it's, I've actually applied for an internship at Altos but I, I didn't know you guys did courses uh, in your place yeah we 
we do we do we do them twice a year. We do uh, one, one in November and one in in, uh, in late, well, early May. Um, so that's nice. that's uh, something that's uh, that's offered here. And um, you know, I, I guess I'm a, you know I kind of come back to, to being curious about uh, a topic, having that independent thought, and then I, I'll be honest. I typically turn to uh, I typically I typically turn to Google Scholar or yeah, yeah. Um, at that app called Read uh, by QXMD, which you can get on your iPhone. But um, that's you know, that's where I go for almost all my information. I, I'm either you know I'm, I'm I, I don't read a ton of blogs really. I, I tend to I tend to rely on on the science and then I tend to rely on having that small network to, of people that I can bounce ideas off of um, and then uh, obviously uh, those are that's kind of my that's kind of my style but what, uh, what was the name of that app that app you just said there uh, it's called read by QXMD I think is the, read is the QXMD I might get send me a link to that so I can put in the channel that's, that's a yeah it's, a, it's a really good app but basically it's a, you can you can pick and choose your journals that you want to follow uh, pick and choose your keywords that you want to follow um, and then you're going to get, you know, obviously a, a, a recent updated summary of abstracts for whatever, um, you know, whatever things that you're interested in looking at. Um, and then, you know, uh, you can never hurt to, to go back to the science, but just make sure you read the papers well. Don't just read the abstract or the methods. Figure out if they've done good, good science and, and make sure you uh, digest, digest, the, digest the knowledge. It's, yeah. it's not meant to be consumed like Halloween candy or whatever happens to help bring this in here in, in, uh, in, uh, in Canada and whatnot. So you, you don't want to, you don't want to be eating the, 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 the information like, you know, without, without really digesting what it means and how it fits. Mm, so. mm. And it's, uh, it's funny because I've had like Greg Knuckles and Mike Gizertel on lately and now yourself and, and I had Derek Evely actually on the other day. Me and myself and Derek were on for like two and a half hours. Derek just kept talking. He's great. But they all say the same thing in terms of like resources or gaining knowledge. Like they were like, you know, Mike and, and Greg are like, read a textbook. You know, if, if, if the area that you're, that, that you're, you're, you're curious in, get a textbook, read the textbook. Then like look for experts in the field. Get to know the experts. Then look up their research and then and look up any research then within that topic. And you know they never. It's never like blogs or anything. Because again, blogs kind of go back to that instant gratification we're talking about. But they're just so sporadic, and the information is like you know someone's talking about fucking this exercise for abs, and someone's saying oh this stretch for your hip, and then someone's saying oh this periodization. But like they, it's it's just all over the place. You're reading just completely obscure things. Whereas you're better off having a sole focus, and then looking to the science like a textbook, going to Google Scholar, going to PubMed, and then contacting actually the experts and even authors of papers so it's uh that's kind of what i've been doing lately is like textbooks looking up the experts listening to see if there's any interviews with the experts and stuff like that so that's kind of the way i do it like yeah no, that's a good, good way to like do like you like contacting you someone who's in in the research field right now so matt last thing where can people find out more about you, your website and, and uh, any other places yeah you can find me uh my up on the web at www.jordanstrength.com um i'm also on twitter at jordan strength so go visit any one of those two, uh, those two, those two avenues, and uh, you'll find me. Amazing. So Matt, just hold on for like I know you're in a rush. Just ten seconds, and I'll just wrap up the show because guys, Matt was like, I've got forty minutes, forty five minutes, and he was so good, like you know, trying to fit this in. His his schedule is so busy. So I really, really, truly appreciate it. Absolutely fantastic show yet again. The last like three or four or five shows I've done with Derek Evely and Mike Israel, Greg Knuckles, unbelievable. And this one now, Matt. So information overload, absolutely brilliant. Love it. So for guys listening, I appreciate you downloading and and if you can leave reviews on iTunes, it helps us bump up the show. So every can benefit from it so guys i'll talk to you soon take care and stay strong